1: Each episode,
0: we answer one
1: personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome to another week. Another week. Best time of the week.
0: Yeah, finance. personal finance. Let's go.
1: We have personal is back. What are we doing today?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we are going to listen to another listener question. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your questions. James and I as we were starting this episode, we're just geeking out together and we have an idea for you listeners out there. So you're all wonderful at submitting questions, but the questions you submit normally are related to a specific sleeve of your financial life. And we have this idea of if anyone whoever's open to it, go to realpersonalfinance.co hit submit a question and say I want let's call it, I don't know, second opinion. I don't know what we would call it. It's not actually financial advice because we still won't know all of the details of your life, but we think we might have a way to help you start looking at some financial metrics that we've kind of been talking about the last couple of episodes. And with that, you can ask any big, broad questions you wanted to have answered to, and we can kind of give you more context on your financial life than we otherwise can when we have you submit questions without context, if that makes sense. So if you're interested, please go to realpersonalfinance.co, hit submit a question and say you'd like a review slash question answer. And I will reach out to you with next steps.
1: Yep. Love it. And I think as Scott, as you're saying, it's our answer so often it depends whenever a listener question comes in and it will continue to be, it depends, but (laughs) we almost feel like we can't go as deep as we'd like to go sometimes because it's a question about retirement, but we have no idea what emergency fund or cash flow or debt or other situations look like. So it's we, we want to avoid being those people that give advice in a vacuum, where you are so gung-ho, stick to this formula, do this, and that's the be-all end-all. We do want to take a very comprehensive look. And I mean, quite frankly, for a question, it's just impossible to do that. But this is one step closer to us being able to not just say, here's what we would do here, but let's see how this pertains to other aspects of your life Still not advice because this show will never be explicitly that, but it's a way to help the asker more, the the person submitting the question, and a good way, I think, to flesh out what are the, the kind of key decision points and key variables that anyone should be looking at for that type of thing.
0: Couldn't agree more. My whole premise for you and I with this is, you know, our, we our joke, but it's not really a joke, is to make it so that the audience at large is financially literate so they can work their way to financial freedom. And we've already explained so much of the tactical things that people can do, but tactics need context. And what an amazing way to start showing context than getting people to submit some interesting where they're at, where they want to go and then all of the some basic data on where they are so that they can start monitoring the progress they're making but we can also hopefully help frame the conversation and the questions for them in an even more pointed way while it's still as you're saying not advice because we're regulated and we can't just give advice to people who write in but we can really help you shape this so let's do it if you're interested please please reach out also if you like the work we do here please leave a five-star review so other people can find us thanks to you we just crossed like 600,000 downloads on our little tiny podcast that we uh, love to do to help you so thank you so much
1: Yeah. Exciting times. And Scott, one more time, just so people know they submit same way that people submit a question now, RealPersonalfinance.co, click submit a question. Is there a certain term or something they should put in that question or
0: just say, I want the financial review from the podcast. I want what Scott talked (laughs) about. I'll uh, I'll take it from there. Yeah. That'll be enough for now because I don't even know what to call it yet. So we'll figure it out as we go, but excited to do it.
1: Yeah. We're building with you. We're building alongside the listeners. So that being said, what are we talking about today?
0: Yeah, today we have a listener question from Blake. Blake, thank you for writing in. Blake says, I'm a new listener to your show, but I'm now hooked in going back to old episodes. Great, old episodes have lots of data, lots of technical, tactical stuff. So please go back and listen to them. My question is about investing. I'm new to investing in the last year or so. As I'm as learning as much more and more every day, sometimes I tend to pull the trigger on things before doing enough due diligence. If I make a stock purchase and later I'm not sure it was the best decision, how long should I wait before selling the shares and moving on from that company? I'm not talking about buying a company and then a week later the stock price dips a little bit and for that reason dumping the shares, but more fundamentally, if I no longer believe that the company is worth the investment, how far long after that point should I wait before selling the shares? Thank you for your podcast. All right. Thank you, Blake. Yeah. So an investing question
1: today. An investing question and kind of like the fundamentals. How do I know what to do as an investor? Mm -hmm. We'll share a framework. I I know we have some
0: thoughts on this
1: for sure. We do. And I think we want to start where whether you're buying a stock or whatever it might be there. Let's just let's paint a broad brush. Where can you start? And then how do you kind of hone in your decision from there? Sounds good to me basic starting point. When you're investing your money, what you're doing is you're taking a dollar today and putting it in something that you hope turns into more than a dollar in the future. You can invest in stocks, which is really just investing in companies, having ownership of a company. You can invest in bonds, which is investing in debt. So you're lending your money to a company, or government. You can invest in real estate. You can invest in commodities. You can invest in cash. You have a lot of options. Those are just the high level kind of categories. And then within that, there's a whole bunch more you can look to do in terms of what sub-asset classes you might consider. So specifically, as Blake is asking this, it sounds like he's talking about stocks and he wants to know what should we be doing. And really most new investors, stocks and bonds is kind of the primary choice that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So let's start there, Scott. Let's say, okay, if I'm a new investor and I'm looking to invest in something, maybe stocks, maybe bonds, what should my decision be based on?
0: Yeah. It's it's an important question. Well, you know, going back to what you mentioned about what we can invest in stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, cash. I think that's what it was. All of those, except for one of them, earn something for you. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, if I go buy a share of, I'm just going to make up a, I'm going to say a company now, it doesn't mean I would go buy it. But if I go buy a share of Apple stock, I'm just saying it because it's one of the biggest companies in the US, everyone knows it. The moment I own that, I now own Apple, so I get, a port, I'm, I get the right to a portion of Apple's profits, technically speaking, right? That usually comes to me in the form of either appreciation of the stock, or if they paid a dividend, could be through a dividend, or could be through a stock buyback. We did kind of a chat about that before, right? Yep. I'm on the hook. If, if it goes down to zero, uh, I'm done, and, and that's it. Uh, if it goes to the moon, I get to reap that reward. Yay me. Yep. On the bond side, as you just mentioned, bonds are very similar. Everyone, if, if, if anyone at home has a mortgage, it's just the opposite side of the mortgage transaction. Basically, it's a little, it's a little nuanced than that. But you basically, if you have a mortgage, you went to a bank where they checked your credit score and your ability to pay, and they set an interest rate based on current rates plus or minus your credit worthiness. And that's exactly what happens in the bond market all day long for governments and corporations. And you can be the lender and they will give you an interest rate. And at the end of that term, they will give you your money back. So it's inherently not as risky, right? Yeah. Real estate can, I'm not going to dive into the risks of it, but obviously it's great for appreciation <laughs> over the long run. And then come on, but it earns something typically, right? We have a tenant usually there, or we're living there and maybe we're getting some price appreciation if they're primary residence. Yeah. Commodities don't earn a return for us. Just want to be clear. Commodities are a thing that we can, that are the, Basis of investing, or pardon me, of, of they're the basis of industrial whatever. Commerce, All the widgets yeah. that we need to make need to have commodities to make them. Whether it's corn going into your jeans, I know that sounds crazy, but it does go into your jeans, or you know some base material going into like a, you know, making a microchip. And then you have cash, which cash you would think doesn't earn a return, but it earns what's called the risk-free rate of return, whatever the the current Fed funds rate is. It'll usually earn about that. Now banks will give you less. I think we're up to what yeah, minus five percent or something like that at Marcus or you know Capital One or wherever you go put your money. But those are the four. Those are the main places, as as you just mentioned, right? And then when we look at okay, so now let's just go invest in the stock market. Well, the stock market's massive. I forget the trillions of dollars off the top of my head, but it's like I might be wrong in context, but I think it was something like thirty-seven trillions the U.S. and you know, 19 some trillion is international markets. And then emerging markets are even smaller. But in total, you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of assets available just in the stock market where we're owning companies. Yeah. And the question that Blake's asking is, how do I know which one I should buy? And I would actually for a second say, well, let me ask you a different question. If you get to go to Las Vegas and you could choose to play in three ways, this is how, kind of how I think of the stock market. One is I could step in and play the games. That's saying like, do I search my fundamentals and figure out which game I want to go play and go sit down and play knowing that I have some edge that I can win for some reason? I like this specific company, so I'm going to go buy it at, on my casino floor, if, if you give my little analogy here. At the end of the day, when we look at the evidence, that really doesn't work well for us. It's not very helpful. It's far better to look around and go, how did Vegas make all this money? They made all this money by letting people come in and play the games and putting the odds in their favor. Index investing, whether that's owning the Russell 3000, the 3000 companies of the US or the, you know, all capital world index, just owning all the US global stocks. Just doing that puts you at an advantage over trying to pick winners and losers in the stock market. Now, it seems counterintuitive because in everything else that we've ever done in life. And I know, knowing like, James and how like driven he is. I think he's starting to do like kickboxing classes and boxing classes right now. We always think that the more work we put into something, the more we research something, the more we do something, we are going to come up with an advantage. But when we go look at the underlying work of like actually look at the professionals who are paid to try to go beat the markets, go do better than the markets, more often than not, they don't do it. And they're doing it as a full-time job. Yeah, that's kind of how I think of it. Like, do I want to play in the casinos, or do I want to buy a casino?
1: Yeah, and let's circle back to that second because I want to. I I do want to hit on that again. To start to simplify this decision a little bit, what if you just buy the casino? What if you just bought the S and P five hundred and you owned that, say, since nineteen twenty six? Just going back almost one hundred years. Yeah, you did pretty darn good. Your return was about ten and a half percent per year from nineteen twenty six until the end of twenty twenty one. That maybe doesn't seem like a lot. Okay, 10.5%, cool. Well, When you compound that for a number of years, it really starts to blow your mind how much wealth can be created when you just follow a disciplined strategy of getting that consistently, at least on average, over long periods of time. Absolutely. Bonds, on the other hand, you mentioned bonds are another investment where you're not owning an asset, but what you're doing is you're lending your money to a company, to a government, kind of the reverse of what a mortgage is. Bonds historically have averaged about 5.5% per year. So as we just simplify this decision, what am I going to own stocks or bonds? Well, you have to balance what are your desires? Is it growth or is it stability? It doesn't have to be one or the other, but to what degree kind of look at opposite side of the spectrums, how do you understand what types of things are going to grow, but also give you more what the financial world calls volatility, which is really just uncertainty. You don't know if your money is going to be up this year, down this year, just a lot of uncertainty in the short term but tremendous long-term returns in the long run? Or do you want something that's a little bit more certain in the short term, but is also going to cap your returns in the long run? That's kind of the starting point as an investor,
0: what I would tell someone to look at. Totally agree. Totally agree. And the other thing from there is you'd mentioned the S&P 500. You know, that's the 500 largest companies in the United States. But there's really like way more than... Well, three the Russell three thousands, the three thousand largest companies in the United States. So there's there's a lot of different buckets you can look to go invest in. And if you just look at so like the large S and P's, the large cap stocks that you mentioned, that ten and a half percent return. Well, if in, if we wanted to go be more risky and more volatile, we could go invest in small companies, and we could even tilt it to like value small companies. And then the rates of return can get something like over that same period of time, somewhere around like the 13% range.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's no singular way of investing in stocks in the same way there's no singular way of investing in bonds. It's really a spectrum. And, And you're going to be compensated more for taking on more uncertainty in the short term. But understanding what should you do with small companies, large companies, value companies, growth companies, international, emerging markets, domestic. There's just so many ways you can slice that up. But the high-level decision is going to be how much in stocks, how much in bonds. That's the first most important decision. And then within that, what kinds of stocks, what kinds of bonds. And then from there, Scott, we're just talking stocks or bonds. Like, Do you go buy an individual stock to get that return? Do you buy the whole index to get that return? And
0: pros and cons to both, but let's flush that out. Let's. So, Because you can kind of think like, well, come on, man. I I know what's going to win in the future. Like, I already know everyone's like really excited about, you know, Instagram and Tesla and Rivian and like, I don't know, whatever the thing is today, right? Like yeah. there's always stuff that people are really excited about that we can just go buy and clearly we're just going to go win, right? Like, well, it,
1: And even looking really that hard,
0: you know, like looking backwards, as you're listening to
1: this listeners, what do you think the best performing stock since 2000 has been, at least US stocks? You know, don't, yeah. don't look it up. Like, you know, first thing's gonna be, oh, it's Amazon or it's Apple or it's Te- you know, it's gonna be one of these high flyers. And those have obviously all been hugely successful. And if we could yeah. go back in time, yes, we would recommend own an individual stock and make it one of those, and you're probably gonna be okay. The problem is we didn't have that time machine, we couldn't make a decision. But I think what surprises a lot of people is that was those weren't even the best performing stocks. Of no, this what was the best million. performing stock? Monster Energy was the best performing stock. Of 2000 to 2020, and it had an average. It's so return. crazy,
0: an energy drink company. Yeah, they they sell cans of energy drink. And- well, and because especially like that's a consumer staple company, right? Like that's that's supposed to be the one that we buy because like whether it's going up or down the economy, like everyone's going to buy soda. Yeah, or Monster, or who or, would have thought yeah, or Monster Energy
1: <laughs> <laughs> that it would have been that. And and here's how wild returns on that were it from 2000 to 2021 its average annualized return was
0: 37.25%. That's when insane. So get so that. there's this thing called the rule of 72 if you ever want to just think in your head for a second like when james told you 10% rate of return that means like about every 7 years your money doubles. Well on a 37% rate of return it's about every 2 years your money doubles.
1: Yep. Yeah. Do that for 20 years
0: you've a lot of money 100k investment you. turns into 106 million. In 21 yeah. years. <laughs> That's so bananas. Obviously, if we could just go back in time and put our 100K in, in Monster, we'd be all set.
1: We'd be the best financial advisors of all time. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you'll you, you hear stories like that and it's tempting. I mean, it's impossible not to say, oh, well, like, why don't I just spread my money out through a handful of stocks? And If I hit the next big winner, right, all my money problems are taken care of. If I have $106 million, like, oh, what if I put 100 grand in Monster? I don't need to worry about retirement or college funding or anything else. James, I want to
0: take the other side of that coin. I want to make the assumption that I go invest in individual stocks and I miss the top 10% of performers. Yeah. Because we have data on this too. Now, it's not from the 2000 to 2021 that you were just talking about. I have the data from 1994 to 2020, but if you just invested in the entire global economy in the stock market, you had a rate of return of 8.2%. So basically what that means is you're invested in that S&P that, that had that, you know, around that 10% return, but the international maybe didn't do as well during that whole period of time. That makes sense because tech stocks were in that such a boom from yeah. 94 to 2000. So that that's all lining up for me. And then the most recent boom from the 2008 period forward, 8.2% rate of return. Not bad. What, how much do you think it would be if you just missed the top 10% of performers? What would your return be? Well, you
1: think, okay, that eight percent on average, yeah. You might say, I don't know, seven percent.
0: Yeah, maybe you lose a percent. A half percent no, lose a percent. Th- so. Sadly, that's not the case. You would have a three point six rate of return instead of an eight point two rate of return because you missed picking the top ten percent of winners. And that is the reason why I, typic- I I am a big advocate of, you know, some owning everything unless there's a reason not to essentially, right? Because we don't know who the winners are going to be. We want to own monster energy, not knowing it's going to give us a 37% rate of return during that period of time. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's going to happen is companies are going to go out of business. Companies are going to get acquired. Companies are going to be gobbled up by competition. And that's okay. We want the 8.2 rate of return. Now, what if we missed the top 25% rate of
1: return? What do you think would happen? Oh, geez. I do not even want to know. 10% wiped out over half the returns. 25%. Twenty-five percent.
0: You you actually have a negative four point seven percent rate of return. You get a negative rate of return. So in other words, so, if you want three quarters of the market, which is a lot of the market. But just now, yep. you, know,
1: you got to be pretty unlucky to miss. All,
0: you just make all, all the 25%. all the
1: wrong all the wrong calls. <laughs> if, if you follow Jim Jim Cramer for every single piece of stock picking, you do know, <laughs> poor dig at him. But yeah, like that's that's what that shows is it's a minority of the actual successful stocks that drive the entirety. Of the returns. It's not like absolutely. Oh, every stock averages 10%. It's no, some have amazing returns and most have subpar returns.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole premise, right? Like we don't we don't want to go try to pick winners and losers, just own it knowing you don't need to know who the winners are gonna be. You just need to go along for the ride.
1: Yeah. JP Morgan did a great study. We actually referenced this a few episodes ago, but JP Morgan did a study where it said since 1980, if you look at the SP 500. Over 320 of the companies in the S&P 500 were deleted from the S&P 500, not because of mergers and acquisitions, but because of business distress reasons. Mm-hmm. I Meaning these companies were upended by competition. Something happened. They went out of business. That's a huge amount of turnover. If you're owning individual stocks, your chances of owning those companies is a lot higher. Yeah, your chances of owning the next monster are higher than if you own the whole index, of course, but your chance of owning something that becomes worthless also becomes much higher. This same study showed that 40% of stocks since 1980 in the Russell, I don't remember if it was a Russell 300 or 3000 or the, the Wilshire 3000, Mm. but extremely similar 40% of stocks in the index suffer a catastrophic loss, which they define as a decline of 70% or more in the price of a stock from its peak. Yeah. Meaning the majority of the stocks have in value or more and don't really recover.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we've just seen that happen recently in the tech sector and who knows who's going to come back and who's not, Yeah, you know, like, don't know. That's yeah. why we, we preach <laughs> reducing concentration in your employer positions if you have them and diversifying for exactly yeah. the three. And interestingly enough, when you, you know, the more you think about it, like, Venture capital firms actually deploy capital in a similar manner to the way that returns work in the S and P 500 or any of these returns that we've been looking at. Right. They basically yeah. go deploy across a bunch of companies knowing that like a huge percentage of them are going to go out of business and return nothing for them. Some yeah. are going to give them some mediocre return. A couple are going to hit grand slams, but they never know who it's going to be. If they did, they just put all their money in the, in the grand slams. Totally. And, and
1: again, going back to nineteen eighty. Two thirds of all publicly traded stocks underperformed the index. So whether it's venture capital, whether it's a fund, it's the reason that Scott and I say diversify, and we've talked about this a bunch before. Is it because we think, oh, we want to play it safe, and we want to like we don't want to do too well in our performance? No, we want to do the best we possibly can with our performance, and the best way you can do that is to diversify. Now that doesn't mean just go own the S and P or just go own the Russell 3000. We think there's ways to do better find small cap markets, value markets, international merchant, diversify well, even within your diversified holdings. But we say that not to be boring and to play it safe. We say that to get the absolute best return on investment and also to decrease risk in doing so.
0: Yeah. Again, it's the, it's the idea. Like There's this idea a lot of us can have that, I mean, I used to try to do it. I used to try to beat the markets. Right. I used to try to pick individual positions thinking that I could do that until like this data on, it's just overwhelming. Mm. And the people, normally if we talk, chatting around at a barbecue about who, what the winners are, most people who are chatting about our winners, aren't chatting about our losers. Yeah. Right. Yep. But this form of investing, investing in broad based global markets is a way to never have the biggest winner, but also never be the biggest loser.
1: I like what you said. Everyone talks about their winners. No one talks about their losers. I'm, I'm part of different group chats with friends. In 2021, those group chats were 10 times more active than they are yeah. this year. Everyone was loving to talk about what they bought the one up in value. 2022 yes. comes around and it's mysteriously quiet.
0: It's because people are losing yeah. money.
1: They just don't want to uh,
0: admit of a sudden. it. All of a sudden, things that don't create actual earnings aren't being talked about as much. Hmm. Exactly.
1: But if you go back to 1980, and again, the quote unquote boring diversified way, if you bought $10,000 worth of the S&P 500 index in 1980 through the end of 2021, just put it there and left it, it's worth over $1.16 million. So you can still build serious wealth while still being very diversified in your investments the reason when we're looking at individual stocks, it just chances are better that you're going to underperform. And if you underperform, it's not just, oh, shoot, I can't go brag to my friends what I bought. It's if you're doing that in your retirement fund, you might not be on track for your retirement goals. You might not be able to send kids to college. You might not be able to stop working the job that you hate. Like it has very real implications. It's not just about did you win or lose? It's about what is what are the implications for you and your lifestyle and everything else you want to do.
0: Fully agree with you. And, and our little pro tip here, if you really, if you just can't get over the idea like that you want to go pick winners and losers, I would be like, Hey man, go for it, but do it with a small dollar amount that you don't care about winning or losing. It's just for fun. You're going to go pick those winners and losers. Hopefully you find the next monster energy and it's, you know, <laughs> it gets a 37% rate of return over the next 21 years. Yeah, But if it doesn't, you're still going to be okay because you're going to have enough funds saved along the way that you'll be on track to hit your retirement goals or whatever right. work optional goal, freedom goal you have. Yeah, exactly. And this ties into Blake's last uh, part of his question. He said, if I
1: no longer believe that a company is worth the investment, how long after that point should I wait before selling the shares? So in other words, I buy a stock. When do I, if I feel it's not worth the investment, I think the pushback Scott and I would give is ask yourself, how confident are you in your ability? Abilities or in those feelings. Because even if you look at the most well paid, the people with the most access to information, the people with the longest tenure in this industry, they tend to underperform on managed Mm -hmm. index. When you look at actively managed funds, if that's the case, what chance do we have? You know, if we feel maybe something's been held for too long or we feel it's got good chances. So it's just, so much of investing is emotional. We just don't realize it. We're all subject to these biases or these heuristics and they kind of manifest themselves into being feeling very strongly about something or against something. Just understand when do you set those aside and just follow what works kind of based upon evidence and history versus like Scott says, if it's fun, great. Have a separate account. Pick those stocks that you feel are winners or losers. We don't have much feedback on when should you sell or when should you buy because we just don't think that's a very effective way of doing things. But limit your losses on that by making a small amount of your overall net worth is probably not too bad.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what it really all comes down to is have an investment philosophy. Have one that you can stick with. And I actually would say the simpler you can make it, the better, typically. Right. Yeah. Don't make it overly complex. It doesn't need to be.
1: It doesn't. There's the, you don't have to have a complex investment strategy to build huge amounts of money, not that it's about huge amounts of money, but like if you just look at the numbers, you can make huge amounts of money if you do the simple things right over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's not that it's not hard because it is. I, I want to be clear. Yeah. You know, knowing what you should do and doing it are two different things. And knowing that this, the, the way to build wealth is to allow time and savings to build wealth and not panic during downturns and reallocate and rebalance when you should and not get overly hyped about the next new thing that's out. Like, you know, people got super hyped about crypto. It's just, just let the markets work for you. Mm-hmm. Stick to the fundamentals and do that. And and it's inevitable that you will be financially free.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, Well, Blake, this is a really good question. Thank you. Scott, do you have anything else to add to the
0: question itself or broadly speaking? No, just thank you for the question. Please keep them coming. Yeah. And looking forward to hearing from everyone who's interested in a little bit more context with their financial questions.
1: Absolutely. All right. We will see you all next time. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to
1: another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This
0: podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.